Well, I'm doing a no alcohol Sunday, so I'm drinking my delicious bubbly water and I'll try to pop it on microphone for you. Sounds lovely. Do you have any feedback from last episode or other things or do people talk to you? Is it just me? <laughs> no, I didn't get anything this time. I do have many notes for myself in terms of what we talked about last time. First things first, I'll just cover off on Gini coefficients since that was a big topic. I don't know why I never bothered to look it up while we were talking about it, but it's pretty easy to get the Gini coefficient for Australian wealth. It is 0.62 and it has been trending up for the last 10 years. So contrary to the income that's kind of up and down and it was down in the last two years, Wealth Gini coefficient is continuing to go up. So Australia is becoming more and more unequal when it comes to wealth. Just like Pi Cody said they would. Yeah, exactly. Predominantly due to housing assets, pretty much. Oh, really? Okay. Not the share market. Not the share market. Share market would have a little bit to do with it. Predominantly housing assets, though. How did Australian housing go through the GFC? Just out of curiosity, because you say 10 years, and that makes me think GFC is when the last time it became more equal. And, you know, economic collapse seems like a good way to increase equality. Well, not a good way, but uh, an easy way. I mean, the great level. That may be a topic for this very episode, depending on what you want to talk about. Yeah, look, this is just me talking completely off the top of my head. I'm not looking it up whatsoever right now. I vaguely remember that everyone's like, oh, yeah, in 2008, we've got an economic crisis. Finally, it's going to pop the housing bubble that's going crazy right now. And it kind of like just flattened growth. It might have gone down like two, three percent in Sydney. Yeah. for a couple of years. So that's like actually stopping the growth. Yeah. It's quite the thing these days. Sure, COVID can't stop it apparently. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, didn't see the same depressions as they saw in the States, that's for sure. Right, or the share market because I go that the Australian share market collapsed as well because that was the 6,000 threshold that we never quite hit and then 10 years later we still hadn't hit it. Was that right? The All Ordinaries hitting yeah. 6,000? Yeah, because it was 2008 was when I first got into the share market, had my $10,000 all saved up. Yes. Put it in back when the share market had dropped from 6,000 to 4,000. I'm like, everything's on sale. Oh, canny investor. And then everything kept crashing. Uh, <laughs> not as canny investor as we would maybe like. Rats. Mm. Anyway, so that was my fun. You're probably up by now. Uh, yeah, probably. I don't know. It's not like I ever look at my share portfolio. <laughs> right. Do you not check it yours daily? I check mine daily. <laughs> Mm, I'll leave that comment to the side. <laughs> and then also while we're talking about Gini coefficients and inequality and that kind of thing, while I was just double checking and trying to track down if I could find income Gini coefficients for hunter-gatherer societies, because I talked to that in the great leveler, he said it was around 0.35 or something like that. And early agricultural societies were 0.52 for wealth inequality, but we couldn't get income inequality in there. It was very hard to view flows in a historical record. I would have to imagine like that far back where before before any kind of record keeping once you've got tax data or that yeah exactly you can get some idea but was it the great level where they were literally like these kids had a bunch of wolf teeth gowns yes. that's how they were measuring wealth is like the number of wolf teeth that you have and these couple of kids who are probably the kids of the chieftain had a bunch of wolf teeth made into a cloak and they're like phenomenally more wealthy than anyone else because anyone else only had like a little wolf teeth necklace or something yeah so exactly as you say the difficulty is actually coming up with income inequality back in the historical record or in the prehistorical record. Uh, hard to pick that out out of archaeological evidence. But fortunately, there still are a bunch of hunter-gatherer societies on the world. 
So in the Amazon, in Africa, marginally in Papua New Guinea, and a few of those have been assessed. And there'll be a link to a paper in the show notes where in those societies, the income inequality Gini coefficient ranges between 0.23 and 0.37. So pretty much exactly the same as the difference between Norway and America in income Gini coefficients. It's crazy. That's remarkable. Wow. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Well, I mean, it's easy to focus on the very tip top, which maybe don't have such an outsized impact on income, but I don't even know what that would look like. You've got one hunter gatherer who hunted a rabbit and the other one hunted a Porsche. Is that what's happening? <laughs> There's a little bit of like, it captures other elements that we wouldn't clearly think of as income. It's not just material goods, but it also includes like status goods, I suppose, in those societies. Right. I thought that's what all goods were. Optionality for, you know, mates, procreation, etc. Right. So that kind of gets captured in these measures as well, which was interesting. It was a very interesting paper. If people are interested in economics generally or reading about inequality, which is kind of economics is our podcast, right? I'm interested. I want to read this paper now. Why wasn't this in the show notes for me to pre-read so we could have this discussion? <laughs> and I could sound smart. Well, now you get to learn more. So All right. There well, you go. possibly this is next episode discussion then. What else did we talk about last week? So last week we talked about the Wikipedia shareholder value webpage. Did Brian edit it? I had to put that in the notes so that we could check back on this recording. So I did indeed actually get around to updating it. Yes. It took me a couple of days. Nothing like a bit of accountability. Now, listeners... Don't go and edit it away. Actually, maybe do go and edit it away. We can have a little edit war between our listeners and Brian. <laughs> there were a couple of other points here. So going back a couple of episodes, feedback on the feedback you got about the infinite game and government policy is an infinite game. Yep, yep. I never got to tell my favorite story about purpose and government departments which was a couple of years ago, I talked to a guy who works at the ATO. Yes. So I was scoping out, you know, whether I'd be interested in getting a job there and wanted to get a feel for the corporate culture, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked him about like whether they have a purpose or a mission statement or anything that they work to. And he literally laughed out loud and Oof. laughed in my face. Wow. He could not believe the concept of actually writing down and having a guiding light purpose. And I'm like, ooh, I feel bad for you, man. Yeah. I do think that the company we used to work for, or I used to work for, or you currently work for, it was unusually strong at that in terms of instilling purpose. I could still name, what is it? Our belief, our mission, our purpose, and our values. I got no idea on our current company. They apparently changed every couple of years, which is reasonable while you're finding your feet. You're not quite sure what your values are and you want to write them down, but it is not like a thing like it was at my previous company not at all so yeah when you have no purpose at all i can see that being starkly different to what you're currently used to it was also funny contrasting the way that conversation wrapped up was like well at least you know you'd be working for the good guys and then i contrast it to my friend at new year's eve who's like oh taxes are just stealing i'm like hmm, maybe you wanted to find that purpose and make it clear that you are good guys rather than just take it for granted yeah not everyone believes that you're the good guys taxman i think that there was a myth about a robin hood maybe i don't think the taxman was <laughs> the good guy in that am i misremembering <laughs> were we meant to be rooting for the tax man so uh yeah that's one of my favorite stories about purpose in modern companies right well i got a little one when we just become the podcast that uninformed unintelligent people talk about open source software with no real experience because yes. uh, this is this is something our listeners at least really love to talk to Come me on, about you worked on open source software don't give yourself too little credit all right i have worked on open source software and i have taken a deep interest in intellectual property law in my time although less of an interest these days but i learned only last week that our company does, in fact, employ at least one person.
person to work on Cassandra, I believe full time. That is their job. We pay them for it. So I said last time that we don't drive the project and that's true. We're not looking to set the goals for the overall project, but we do contribute to it probably to make our life easier. But I think just generally to make Cassandra a better product so that more customers want to buy it so that more customers want to buy from us. So we have at least one. And that did kick off a little bit of an interesting discussion on how these corporate positions for open source software work because Apple and Netflix are both big contributors to Cassandra because they have massive, massive clusters of thousands of thousands of nodes internally. They don't pay us for that, sadly. Uh, Apple, if you're listening, Tim Cook, um, <laughs> and you want to manage Cassandra, we got you. So they have quite a number of engineers setting the scenes for their problems, which are probably pretty unique to them because there's not many thousand node clusters. I think we have for a couple of months a year, we might have a thousand node cluster, but it's sort of for a specific event and then it gets torn down is my understanding. But possibly yeah. if anyone at work still listens, they can correct me or not on that. So if someone's like setting up to get Kim Kardashian to break the internet, they'll reach out <laughs> to you guys. Yeah, maybe. I don't know whether we'd help with that, but maybe we might. Yeah, we genuinely might. I think that that's what our technology could be useful. But it's an interesting discussion. I'd love to research it more on good corporate citizenship because Facebook and Netflix, like I say, employ multiple engineers and probably on their ridiculous Facebook and Netflix salaries, which are a trillion dollars a week or something, to live in the Bay Area and lend, you know, maybe a two-bedroom apartment to themselves because they're that wealthy. They are contributing to the open source project where it seems like Amazon is considered less of a good corporate citizen. And I remember a story Oh, six months ago, 12 months ago, time is an illusion, about Amazon like for like just copying MongoDB. So a company made this open database, which must be similar to Cassandra in some ways, although I don't really know the differences of what the use cases for each would be, called MongoDB, which was very popular. And it was open source software, and then they would sell you support contracts. That's the Red Hat sort of method of funding open source software. And then Amazon just built their thing called AmongoDB, or I don't know what they called it. <laughs> it was a direct like for like ripoff. They didn't steal their code, but they made it completely interoperable so that you could just run a not quite a MongoDB directly on Amazon servers and not have to pay Mongo to modify it or run it for you that Amazon would do it all. And so Amazon basically closed sourced that open source software or just took that open source software and make it their own product. Uh, and they don't seem to do a whole lot of contributing back to the community as it were of open source software. So That's interesting. Is that one of the license agreements that you can build into your different open source frameworks? Is like if you copy this, you have to contribute back? Uh, you can make it that if you use our code, your code must be open source. So any add-ons you add to it have to themselves be open sourced if you're using our core. But the idea of this interoperability, which is what I understand Amazon's done, so they haven't copied the code, they've just sort of copied all the commands, was fought in a fairly big battle with Google because I know Android runs like for like on Java syntax and commands, but it is not itself Java. Again, I may be getting this wrong, but there was a huge cost case where you can basically program an Android phone in Java-ish, but Google had recreated Java from scratch to allow you to do this. And there was a court case from... Oracle, who owned Java, probably. It was Sun. It might be Oracle. Sun. Feeling it is Oracle now. I feel like Oracle bought Sun. Where they're like, you can't do this. I mean, Oracle are known to be the most litigious company in the world. And they sued the pants off Google because that's just their thing. And I think they even won, I believe. I think that Google was found to be infringing because they made such a close copy, even though it was all their own code. There was some level of patent protection that uh, allowed them to stop that. So maybe if you're billing yourself as an open source software company, you don't have that level of patent protection and you can't sue in the same manner. I'm not sure on what grounds they were sued, but I have a feeling that patent protection, which is different from copyright, factored into it. 
yeah, it's interesting that some of the big corporations are open source friendly, at least, and some of them are considered to be less so. Although there's the suspicion, of course, in any of these large companies that are hugely profitable and run by incredibly intelligent managers who are designed to increase their profits, that they're probably only helping so that they can drive more profits, right? They're commoditizing the complement. If there's lots of people able to make big websites, then Google can take more money off them for the ads that they need to promote themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, your guy who works for you working on Cassandra is commoditizing your complement. So, you know, whatever. It, yeah. It's how the world works. It gets better. It's how the world works. And uh, yeah, hopefully some value gets added out there. So open source software, an endless point of discussion. Nice one. One last little thing I also wanted to mention was when I was talking about inequality stats, just to go back a couple of minutes, I said, you know, I'm showing my right wing bias here. And it might have been a bit confusing to listeners who were like, but Brian, he's the guy who really wanted the government to fund open source software. And he's also the guy who likes the ABC. What's going on here? And I'll get in the show notes my result from Vote Compass, an initiative done by the ABC a couple of years ago for the 2019 election. I am about as centrist as you can get on the spectrum. Right. And so amongst our friendship group, that makes you the right winger, am I right? Yeah, exactly. So there you go. That was just a bit of context for that conversation too. It's important. Right. So we don't want to talk about this because we don't like talking about the latest thing, but the news article that was published on Scott Alexander was just published and it's awful. I kind of want to big up some lines and how awful it is, but depends how much we want to talk about it. But it just reminded me of, I don't want people to classify me in politics. Like your disclaimer then of like, I'm not really that right wing. I'm very centrist. This is the whole mindset that shut Scott down, that he had opinions. He's a left winger. He even put down his voting record. He voted for Elizabeth Warren in the primaries. He voted for Biden in the general election. He'd voted for Clinton in the previous election. Like he's a liberal, but because he's got slightly different opinions on certain things around feminism or around gender differences, he just gets attacked and he got taken off the internet. And then he gets this smear piece written on him trying to make him out to be just a horrible racist. But we don't want to talk about that. Like I asked you earlier, can we talk about that? And you said no. And I think it's the same problem, right? We don't want our political opinions to be out there because then people can attack us for them. Well, to be honest, from my perspective, I've read about five different takes on it in the last 24 hours and I'm exhausted with the topic. So that's my main reason for not wanting to talk about it. And also to my centrist point, I just really find that screenshot really funny. But no, I can also definitely sympathize with the problem of the thought police. And I'm not saying there's a problem with this, but this was a thought I had today. And it's not necessarily related to Scott Alexander or anything, but it's something I'd like to hear your thoughts on, Chris. A few episodes ago, or maybe even in private conversation, you were saying, when my son grows up, he's going to do all this kind of weird stuff and I'm going to be against it because it'll be like, oh, he's living his life on virtual reality or whatever. And it's like, that's his idea of freedom. Maybe. And to me, instead, it feels like the counterculture movement is a move away from freedom. And the thing that I am going to disagree with Generation Z or my son's generation on is going to be their embrace of censorship. Oh, you think that the pendulum is swinging. I mean, that's actually not an unreasonable point. It does seem to be the younger generation that are quick to cancel people and flex their power of the thought police. Yeah, like one of the things that came up in one of the various articles I read today was, oh, Scott's so keen on being able to talk anonymously on the internet as if that was a bad thing. And I'm like, well, that was my entire life growing up from the year 2001 when I got the internet in my isolated farmhouse to the year 2010 when I stopped hanging out on forums and started just using Facebook because that became the predominant platform for people to engage with each other. Yeah, yeah. The default was you would never put your real name on the internet. You'd always sign up with some kind of pseudonym wherever you were. Like it was almost considered dangerous to use your real name in internet land. Yeah, it was considered dangerous sharing basically any personal information about yourself. The fact that on the internet, no one knows you're a dog was a thing. (laughs) Yes, yep. Still somewhat true. 
listeners, try to guess which one of us is a dog. <laughs> I mean, you filthy dog. <laughs> no, it's just, it feels like the pendulum is swinging strongly the other way. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the driver is. I don't know if it is a cultural thing, if it's a media thing, that the media have felt, well, now the internet is embedded in our society. They need to push back and get their power back. If it is actually a thing where we have seen the negative consequences of polarization in our day-to-day discourse, we've found out that some of our friends hold views that we don't like and they get really angry in Facebook comments and that's not an experience we want to have. So instead we move to Instagram. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I do remember even from my youth though, that like at the dinner table, you don't talk religion, you don't talk politics. They're the two things that you just don't talk about. And now maybe we like to talk about politics, but the important thing is that everyone agrees on everything all the time. And that's the way you avoid the arguments on politics. So you're only allowed to have one of two opinions. You can either have the left-wing opinion or the right-wing opinion. And if you have a single right-wing opinion, then you're just going to get yelled at a bunch. Maybe. I don't know. I remember being the person yelling at my father about climate change 10 years ago. So uh, maybe it's not that a new phenomenon. I don't know. It's definitely in topics where emotions run high, but we're allergic to it, right? You and me. I hate it. I bring this topic up explicitly because I don't want to talk about it. And I knew you didn't want to talk about it. And I even asked you and you're like, we're not going to talk about this. This conversation has nicely stayed in the areas that I feel okay discussing. Okay, that's good. Because I mean, because it's difficult, right? I mean, we had this discussion when we first made the podcast and I don't think we've talked about anything extremely controversial, but we almost talked about just not ever publishing it because it would be scary to have our ideas and opinions out there and people might attack us for them. Yeah, one day when Chris and I hit proper financial independence, then we'll just like go nuts with yeah. the oral our silly opinions about how great Diablo 2 is. Oh, about wait. how great Diablo 2 is. I thought we were getting famous before we were getting rich. That's the goal, right? <sighs> no, nah, man, I just want to talk to Diablo streamers. Yeah, you're lining those up. I'm sure we'll get there soon enough. Well, I hope we'll get there soon enough. One day. I don't know whether I'm invited, actually. Maybe it'll just splash on the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be like that section on Dear Hank and John where he had Jonathan Goldstein in doing a Planet Money bit, and that was great. You'll just completely cut me from the podcast and make your own episode. <laughs> It's fine. I'll find interesting people of my own to interview. I'd love to hear it. You've got lots of interesting friends. I do have a lot of interesting friends. Much more than me. I like my friends. You're one of my friends. You're very interesting. Well, thank you. (laughs) So did you have anything else you wanted to talk on that topic? I mean, it's such a difficult topic. Like, I'm happy to leave it there. All right. We're doing your thing. I read it twice. Yeah, nice. I have pushed Chris this week to get back into the great conversation. He tried the Iliad. I think you got through the Iliad, didn't you? No. No, you didn't even get through the Iliad. I thought you finished it and were like, no, never again. I got like three quarters and I'm like, none of the characters make any sense. No one's motivations make any sense. I do not care about black ships and not like you've never mentioned a black ship to me again and I will fall asleep. I promise. (laughs) Fair enough. After our conversation a couple of weeks ago on Plato and Chris just having no idea around why you would ever prioritize honor and talking a bit about the prioritization of power and using power to just boss your wise men around and that kind of thing. When I read this bit in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, I messaged him straight away and was like, Chris, you got to read this bit. Just this one chapter. It's only 3,000 words and we can talk about it on the podcast. So we are reading chapter 10, which is of power, worth, dignity, honor, and worthiness out of Thomas Hobbes' The Leviathan. Um, I better look up when this was actually first made. Give me a bit of background on Hobbes. He's one of the famous modern philosophers, I want to say. You know, Enlightenment era, right? Yes. Leviathan was published in 1651. Hobbes was alive from 1588 to 1679. 
I think he was around during the English Civil War, so when Cromwell ended up taking over for a little bit. So he's English, I gather. Yeah, so English guy. And this was like one of the very early writings. It might have even been the fundamental in the post-Renaissance era for social contract theory. Yeah, it's social contract him? No. But Leviathan is his description of the society and the social contract. That's the metaphor of the Leviathan, right? Yeah, so it starts building up towards that and like lays the foundation for it and kind of plays out, here's how a social contract could work and this is why a king running the social contract is so great shouldn't it always be a king that's great whereas Locke kind of takes it and builds upon it a bit further about a half century later and lays it out that it could just be a natural thing arising from the way just group dynamics work and kind of gets rid of the need for a king and Rousseau is the one who actually wrote the book the social contract and really laid that same firm foundation to try and build up to a social contract from first principles right So far, the first book of Leviathan doesn't really touch on that at all. It is all about just really trying to lay the foundations of Hobbes' philosophy. He spends a lot of time talking about you have to define your terms because if you are talking without having clear definitions for your words, you just talk in absolute trash and you're not even worth listening to. It's not an unreasonable point. It's hard to do. There's a lot of semantics that can be argued over. Yeah, exactly. Probably the first point I want to make on reading Leviathan. So the translation I've got is the trans. Translator's notes specifically say, this isn't a translation. I've just copied his stuff word for word as best I can, including all spelling errors. Yeah, there's a lot of those. And just formatted it so it can be in an e-book format because I got it off Project Gutenberg. And it's great. Like the spelling errors, yeah, they're there. But honestly, they're the same kind of spelling errors I'd expect to see in a year 10 classroom. Uh, it added the flavor. I like to pretend I'm reading old English when I'm reading it. It's like, maybe it's not a spelling error. Maybe that's just how they spelled Joined back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm just constantly surprised by by how modern it sounds compared to Shakespeare, which was 50 years earlier, or the other languages that you hear thrown around, which was like that ye olde English was basically unpassable. And if you try to read things like Beowulf or that kind of thing, it's all just complete gibberish. Whereas something in like the mid 1600s is totally readable. So that was my first big impression on reading these. And it's such a refreshing thing to read compared to translations of ancient Greek or Roman, by the way. Yeah, also they're crazy. Also they're crazy. There's definitely like a more modern mindset to these, which is easier to get to. But I think a nice thing in this on power is it still touches a bit of that old world. Like one of his different natural powers that he talks to you can have things such as extraordinary strength form prudence arts eloquence liberality or nobility and nobility is just an inherited title from your parentage yeah and he even acknowledges that nobility is completely worthless outside your own country but it is a natural power that you have yes that is pretty old school compared to modern times i mean modern western times i suppose yeah, it's got a bunch of subchapters. It like goes over his definition of power in and of itself first, then goes into the worth, how you value others or what your own worth is, defines dignity, goes through and plays out what is honoring someone versus dishonoring someone else. And then there's a like subsection, which you can probably skip, which is titles of honor. So just like what's a duke, what's a marquee or a baron. And then finally finishes out on like what is worthiness. So as someone who hasn't really delved too much into philosophy directly, so you've gotten a lot of it indirectly, Chris, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, it's interesting. Like my major thought is that 
he just talks about social status in about 20 different ways, as far as I can tell. Yep. All of his power is power over people. And where that really was slammed home to me was in the line, the sciences are small power because not eminent and therefore not acknowledged in any man, nor are they at all, but in a few things. For science is that of nature and none can understand it to be, but such as have good measure has obtained it. So it's like all the other powers is like people will do what you want or you're known as really good counsel or you're a fancy general or you're a fancy judge. All of the powers seemed to be you have power over other people and like science having power over nature how could that possibly be useful which is sort of contrasted just to his first line of like power is the ability to obtain a future good yeah i thought it was great like i had that exact same sentence highlighted i didn't know how much of it was like a product of the times in that organized military was kind of a thing like building up around then they were kind of in the transition away from knights and individual warriorship and one-on-one combat to a more organized military and that was definitely coming out as part of the English Civil War as well. Yeah, the fact that the sciences weren't really developed at that time, so not really that powerful. It was funny compared to all the other pure reputation of power or the fact that you've got runs on the board gives you more power and that kind of thing and just social status as power was so powerful but actually knowing how the world works, it's not really that valuable in our society in the 1600s. Yeah, where's the Industrial Revolution set? I feel like they had gunpowder then but not a whole lot of factories. Is that? Yeah, I think they would have had cannons. Yeah. I just feel like I could picture Cromwell with a musket, maybe. Probably. It was also a good follow-up. That's the second last paragraph in On Power. The last paragraph is, arts of public use, basically warfare, give you power and you get them through knowledge of science. But really, it's just knowing how to do war is the best thing. Yeah. I mean, how much do you feel like that has changed today? I guess scientists have some social status, but compared to rich people or famous people or... I don't know, the other methods of attaining power. I'm not sure that it's changed that much. I'd mostly agree with that. I'd say, yeah, social influence is probably still the main determinant of power. We've just changed how that social influence comes about. Nobility is not directly a thing that you can claim anymore. You can definitely leverage social networks that you're part of, but it's not something that you can just be like, well, I'm the son of X, so therefore you need to give me the status that X was granted from the king 500 years ago. Although certainly we've exchanged money for a lot of social status. I think having money is just more directly power and probably the good way to do that is to actually influence the real world in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases. Yeah, we've abstracted a lot of things and have turned them into monetizable assets and that way we can influence without so much reliance on being able to even talk the same language. Yeah, that was certainly what stood out to me. Yeah, it really is. It's just all of his power is different ways to make other people do what you say. Yeah. What did you think about mini section on honor and dishonor? That was there's a lot of like ways to honor people and dishonor people, right? It's just all playing political games, right? It's just how you suck up to people and make you like them or how you can lord it over them and be the really trustworthy guy or whatever. I did find that really funny. Honor is purely just like sucking up to someone, like saying, oh, you're so great. That is honoring them and receiving that greatness and saying that you like those people. Well, I like those people too. And that is honoring them. But so much of like the layout of honor was just suck up to people and tell them that they have power or acknowledge their power or you get honor indirectly by saying that you're affiliated with those other people who have had power. Yeah. Here's one I didn't get. To imitate is to honor for it is to vehemently approve. Sure. To imitate one's enemy is to dishonor. Why? I guess it'd be if you were copying the religious practices of, I don't know what the 
practices of the enemies would be. Uh, yeah, England, right? So they would have had the Protestant-Catholic split around then. So if you were honouring the Pope, I guess that's more the next section, right? To honour a person's enemies is to dishonour them. Yes, I can sort of get that. That's just playing political faction games, right? Yeah, hmm. I don't know. I don't know, unless it's like being like a two-year-old. When you said the this is how you sound. And I'm like, I don't think that's what he's talking about. <laughs> That's probably fair. Yeah, so here's like buried in the middle of this section, there's a real pure distillation of it, which is honorable is whatsoever possession, action, or quality is an argument and sign of power. And I think that perfectly distills everything above it. It's like, yep, if you can just have a display of power, no matter how brutish or how weaselly it is, that's honourable. Yeah, that feels not quite right anymore. I think we're just more subtle than that. That feels very unsubtle. Like, uh, I suppose it does happen that people flaunt their wealth in Ferraris or private jets or whatever. But is that a form of honour still? Yeah, I suppose. Like, he even does touch it on there around conspicuous consumption, which I think it was Econ Talk recently had an interview with someone where they were talking about conspicuous consumption coming up around the early 1900s as like just displays of wealth and that kind of was an analysis on the stagnation that they had there. But this kind of conspicuous consumption goes way back at the very least to the 1600s here because one of Hobbes's quotes is about to be conspicuous, that is to say to be known for wealth, office, great actions or any eminent good is honourable. So, you know, just flashing your cash around is honourable. That may be slightly different to a conspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption is where you almost deliberately waste money just to show that you've got money to waste. Yeah, that was actually a thing just before the French Revolution. Louis the something. One of his advisors told him Wait, to have... French? Uh, Louis? Are you sure you're not thinking about Spain? No way. <laughs> yeah. One of his advisors had him pursue a strategy to defer his creditors through royal splendor, which was pretty much just conspicuous consumption. Throw a bunch of parties, be really extravagant, send yourself even more broke just to get more credit because people will think, well, huh. they're spending this much money. You must have plenty in the bank, right? Total tangent, but that's a deliberate cycling tactic as well, which I try to use and fail because we are almost racing a little bit in our cycling at the moment. And one of the tactics is you come up on someone when you're going up a hill and the goal is you just look rock solid. You just like look them in your eye and you're like, yep, I could do this all day. Like inside you're dying. You are working, (laughs) you are working your guts out because that's how you caught up to them is to work as hard as you possibly can. But you're just smooth as silk and you just look and they'll be like, well, if I'm working this hard and he's barely trying, I'll just give up now and then you can get the lead. So... (laughs) I love it. Nice one. Nice one. There you go. Cycling splendor. I love it. So conspicuous consumption all the way down. Nice. Yeah, I thought it was just interesting to get those kind of insights into an old honor society that was slightly different and even a take on power that was very different. I mean, Chris always likes to make the joke between him and I that I just pursue power and wealth and he pursues power and status. Wealth and status. Wealth and status. Wealth and status. Okay. (laughs) But this was a nice consolidation of the two. Yeah, this is basically saying that they're the same thing, right? We're just going about the same thing in different ways. We're all just pursuing honour in different strategies. I mean, that's the joke, right? That's why I say you and I are the same person, except you like power and money, and I like money and status. I think if anyone wants to check out The Great Conversation or wants to dabble in philosophy, I would actually suggest starting out around here. Don't look at the list and say, I'm going to start in ancient Greece like I did, like a fool. Try out these kind of early Enlightenment era writers. So Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, especially Adam Smith. I, I cannot talk too highly of Adam Smith. I really enjoyed his writing. 
They're all really great. As I said in the introduction, their English is surprisingly modern, just with a few weird spelling mistakes, but their grammar all makes sense. It's very easy to just read. I would promote that to anyone who's interested in checking out these kind of philosophical arguments. I'm interested. Promote it to me. Because yes, I agree, this has been much easier to read. I mean, this feels like reading someone I can actually understand. I don't understand the Greeks or their obsession with black ships. This guy, I understand. I think he's just a bit gauche, I suppose. But that's the difference in the age. And I think that that is much more interesting to read, the opinions of the age that I can sort of relate to rather than way back to the Greeks, which is too incomprehensible for me. I feel like I've gotten a bit out of it because I know a little bit about the English Civil War from Mike Duncan's great podcast on revolutions. So that's added an extra layer to my thought process. But there's still interesting stuff in here. Um, Same thing will apply to Locke a little bit. But now they're not just characters in the TV show Lost from 15 years ago. All right, well, we mentioned it on last podcast and we mentioned in the intro, so I thought we'd just discuss briefly the book The Great Leveller by Walter Scheidel. It came out a few years ago, sort of 2008-esque. Nah, it's way more recent than 2008. Oh, no, 2017. Yeah, no, way newer than that. But I think that the GFC and inequality, et cetera, although they do talk about the new guild age these days in terms of inequality, maybe it's a more I feel like inequality really came to the fore around Occupy Wall Street. And Piketty. When was Piketty? When was Capital in the 21st century? It was only a few years before this. Um, So I'm going to say around 2014, 2015. Yeah, okay. So this feels like another in that vein. I'm sure that this was inspired by capital in the 21st century. So Chris is saving myself from myself because I said it would take me an hour to get through all my notes. So I'm happy to just knock it over very quickly in this section. Kind of covers off looking at inequality over the ages. Four Horsemen is what he talks about. The conceit of the book is that inequality is like, it always marches up. That was sort of the premise of Piketty's work is that inequality is inexorable. In normal, peaceful times, inequality will just get worse and worse and worse as the rate of return on capital and inheritances outweigh any possible earnings from wages. Walter Scheidel takes the step forward of like, when does it reverse? What could we expect to happen for an inequality to decrease in our society? And he says, in all of his research, in all of history, there have only been four ways that inequality has reduced, which is mass mobilization welfare. So we're talking about World War II, like that level of warfare. Transformative revolutions, so the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution, the Communist Revolutions, where we just killed a huge number of people, probably some other revolutions, but those are the ones that very quickly come to mind. State collapse, where the, the entire state disintegrates. So I think the Indus Valley civilization did that. Egypt did that, where there is no state anymore and everything's up for grabs, so protecting your wealth is impossible. And plague, so the Black Death being the most famous one in the Western world, where 30% of Europeans died, and that was enough to rejigger the social order, enough that inequality was able to reduce under those things. That's slightly different one, because that was the one that actually gave more power to the workers, that there was so much land and so few workers that the workers could demand a higher wage. Yeah, famously, they actually brought in legislation at that time to say, no, you're not allowed to ask for more wage increases. No, you employers, you're not allowed to pay them more. What is going on? Those people aren't supposed to get any more power out of this. We don't understand markets. Why is everyone doing this? This should be illegal. We're literally going to make it illegal. (laughs) A very quaint view compared to modern economic and market-based thought. Basically, my takeaway is that the only way that we get equality back is not by redistributing current wealth. It's just by destroying a bunch of wealth. And when you destroy a bunch of health, the people who have most of the wealth lose most of their stuff. I think it makes the point at some point that the factory worker and the factory owner, if the factory gets bombed, then the factory worker's out of a job and that's a bummer. But the factory owner has just lost 10 years worth of capital investment in a stroke. So they have lost percentage-wise much, much more than the factory worker. They're both in a bad situation. And the factory worker, indeed, may be in an even worse situation than the factory owner who can lean on his rich friends or escape to a different country or whatever. But in terms of percentage of wealth lost, the richer person has lost more in this event. And that is why equality has increased in the worst way possible. Yeah. 
it's leveling through, you know, mowing the lawn, basically. It's easy to get a nice level surface on your lawn by just cutting off the tops. Yeah, which is not good. I hope that the people who are arguing for greater equality don't want that because that doesn't seem like the outcome that we should be looking for. No, I think the way that we've done things in modern society through structural change and managing redistribution is interesting in that way. It does challenge those views. Like in the book, it looks at a bit of those methods that were pursued, whether it be debt forgiveness in Judean society, I believe. Yeah, it was. that was popular. Yep. Things around taxes in Roman society. It looks at attempted elements of reform in China as well, and just land redistribution. Land redistribution across societies is actually a huge theme here. It is a constant theme in politics of we're just going to take the land holdings because that is the biggest form of capital wealth that we can have and divvy it up and it never works. It never sticks or people just get overthrown doing it and it instigates a whole revolution in and of itself. Yeah, it either turns into that either state collapse or transformative revolution or it doesn't work. There hasn't been a a continuous state that has executed the whole plan of we're going to confiscate all the land and redistribute it in a more equal fashion successfully. It has not worked. So my big thoughts on the book, rather than go through my 50 million notes, would be on his fourth horseman, mass mobilization and warfare. His sample size is incredibly small. Like he effectively denotes it to be limited to the scale of World War One or two. Yeah, I think that's it. It's just those two, right? Yeah, he kind of looks at it and he looks a bit at the Napoleonic Wars and says, this could potentially play in. Like this is when we started actually recruiting from regular citizenry, sorry, mass recruiting from regular citizenry rather than having standing armies or having people just step up from being a farmer occasionally as they did in Greek and Roman societies. But it still doesn't quite stick. He even looks at like, I think he even looks at the infernal columns from the war in the Vendée uh, during the French Revolution that basically went through and killed like 30,000 people within France. And those kind of like mass mobilizations really didn't count. It was just World War One and Two, where there was so much rampant capital disrupt destruction, especially the fire bombings in World War II, as well as just trench warfare and just mass death in World War I. Uh, yeah, that was kind of the concerning part that working from a sample size of two didn't really seem too reliable to me. Yeah, I guess it's more what he's excluding rather than what he's putting in. And maybe The Four Horsemen is just a catchy way to market your book more than anything. But what was striking is he could not find many or any examples of equality being drastically reduced other than these hugely destructive events. That was interesting. That was the only causes he could find. As like a rational book, it was very good in that it considered the counter arguments. The problem that I found, and maybe why it took me six months to get through, was it spent so long on all these different potential takes on it that it watered down its message. It's like, oh yeah, plague's going to be the leveler. But that only happened in the first wave of the Black Death coming to Europe. By the second and third waves of it coming, we didn't actually see that much change in inequality. And actually by the third wave, inequality increased during the Black Death coming through in the 1600s or whatever. So it's like, oh... Okay. I mean, that's interesting, but at the same time, I've just read 50 pages on this and you've watered down your message entirely. I mean, it's a very academic book as well, right? It is exhaustively well-researched on all the different instances of these and opponent to a lot of primary sources and real academic research. Like, it is a book and it is written as a book in the theory of guns, germs and steel, but it is a very academic work in that it's got exhaustively researched point to prove rather than just, uh, uh, I'm going to say a Malcolm Gladwell-style book <laughs> where it's got an exhaustively anecdotal point to prove. 
That's fair. Yeah, I picked on Simon Sinek for anecdotes, but I do really just enjoy reading Malcolm Gladwell. He's such a good writer. Oh, sure. If I was going to choose another book to read and I was faced with one Malcolm Gladwell book and one Walter Schneider book, I'm like, probably going to pick the Malcolm Gladwell book. I just feel, I don't feel as smart when I finish a Malcolm Gladwell book as when I finish a Walter Schneider type book. Yeah, that's fair. And it was a very depressing book to read in terms of the only way that you see drastic changes in inequality is through these huge tragedies. And even when a huge tragedy comes, that doesn't guarantee guarantee you that this is at least going to be the offsetting benefit of inequality decreasing because sometimes it can increase. The other main point that I wanted to get out of it, and this can be a popular theory or hope, or I don't know what you want to call it, is like, oh, well, we can't let inequality get too bad because then the revolution will come and, you know, we'll guillotine them all, which is a popular thing of that's what's going to keep the inequality in check is that the populace will rise up at a point where inequality gets too bad. And he's like, nah, I had a look and like, you, you could get stretches of like 400, 500 years where a stable monarchy would be in position and the inequality would be a Gini coefficient of, you know, 1.3 out of a maximum of one. And it's just, it seems to be a stable position. It wasn't until the plague came through that the inequality was eventually reduced. It's like, these things are the only things that do reduce inequality but they're not inevitable. They just sometimes happen for sort of random other reasons. Yeah, a good amount of commentary around why inequality is important because if inequality gets too bad, there'll be a revolution. It's like, well, in the historic record, that's not a guarantee. No. We can live with a boot on our face for quite a long time. Sad but true, yes. And the other point that I would love to just chuck in the show notes as well is he mentions early on in the book this concept of the extraction index. So we think in terms of Gini coefficients of one is perfectly unequal, one person gets all of the income, zero is perfectly equal, where everyone gets an equal share of the income. That's basically the principles of a Gini coefficient. But if you look at the estimated Gini coefficients for the Roman Empire, they might have been like 0.34. And you're like, wait, what? That's kind of like modern society. Didn't the emperor have ridiculous amounts of income and wealth and power compared to everyone else? And it's like, well, there's actually a bounding function on there that people have to get a minimum amount of income to stay alive. I'd honestly forgotten this point was in this book, but yes, essentially, once you put the boot on the face of humanity to the point where they start literally to death, that's beyond the point of inequality that you can sustain. Yeah. The, what was the threshold they called it? They called it the extraction index. Yeah. And so the Romans were surprisingly close to that. Most of society just had the boot damp so far on their face that they could only just get enough barely to survive. And there was like the Maharaja India was beyond that point. Like they were actually yeah. killing their populace. They were making them so poor. Yeah. They were like starving them. They were exporting all the food. So the people were slowly dying. Like they first started eating away their saved wealth from previous generations and then just died, like actually started starving to death. Similar thing in... Uh, slavery in brazil for sugar plantations they just didn't care they just worked the people to death literally and didn't have to give them the gdp which is horrific but ancient rome seemed ridiculously unequal but it's genie coefficients are similar to today yeah we just have a lot more wealth today to split up i suppose so we can make jeff bezos really really rich and yeah still the rest of us can sometimes buy ps5s <sighs> But unfortunately, the extraction index is not a thing that the ABS publishes every year. So, you know. <laughs> well, you have to have the metrics of the time. It reminds me of, uh, was it Argentina where they had to introduce a new form of... Venezuela. Venezuela. Venezuela, sorry. I often get the South American countries confused. Sorry. Well, yeah, you know, you would think that the purchasing power parity would be a reasonable way to understand the, you know, what a Venezuelan 
Libra, whatever their currency is worth compared to a US dollar, but when they're going under hyperinflation, it's tricky. And then someone came up with the idea of how much does the average day's work in Venezuela buy in calories? And it is less than the amount of calories required for a healthy single man. So assuming that you are a single man with a wife and several children, and you're expected to provide for them while your wife stays at home to take care of the kids, you can't even feed yourself on an average salary in Venezuela at the moment. Yeah. Crazy craziness. Venezuela, I think, is slightly better now in that terms that people can actually eat or the people who couldn't got by out of the country. But I don't know that it's actually a good place. So sad yep. for Venezuela. Sad for Venezuela. Not high on my tourism list. Not that anything's high on my tourism list at the moment. Mm-hmm. There you go. So that was uh, the great level of thank God I don't have to look through all my notes of that anymore. Woo, now we can forget it forever. I'll report back to it every podcast and then we'll tell you to listen to episode eight. Yep. Just like Brian Kaplan because we haven't mentioned him yet. <laughs> oh, good. Got to sneak him in there. Maybe he can be part of the coffee bet. So, Chris, coffee bet style, revealing information and figuring out things and figuring out thought processes. Yep. This year, I want to buy a new computer. Yes. But I don't really know much about the landscape. I know that there was a big step up in like GPU cards last year from the 2080 to the 3080 and it was ridiculously cheap compared and blah, blah, blah. That's about all I know. So I want to somehow turn this coffee bet into a thing that informs Brian about computer hardware and technology. Because if I'm looking at getting a new computer in say six to 10 months, Yep. Do I want to be holding out for stuff that's like just been announced at CES or something? Or am I likely to just be getting stuff that was released last year and has just been sitting on the shelf for a year and I just need to be across the specs of that? I feel like you can do okay on the graphics cards just by being across the specs of what's there at the moment. I feel like there might be more to come in CPUs. Intel's been having a rough time of it in terms of not being able to get their manufacturing together and just really failing on CPUs. And Ryzen, which is their competitor, AMD Ryzen, are probably better for a gaming PC, particularly on a per price basis. But I think that they just tried something with their new architecture that's maybe a little bit experimental now and maybe they can bet it in a bit more next generation. So GPU, I think you can research now. CPU, you might want to wait a little bit. Okay. Because the only thing, honestly, that I knew about Intel CPUs was the new Apple ones are better. And also Intel CPU, they had whatever the Thunderbolt port. Yes. And I don't know if that applied to Ryzen, but this is just talking about laptops. I think we can turn it into a coffee bed. Like, I think we just can bet on Team Red or Team Blue, basically, which is, so Intel have always ruled the roost for CPUs There's, and sort of arguably still do that the, the i9-9600X blah, blah, blah is the most powerful gaming chip you can get. Although the AMD Ryzen Threadripper 3700X or whatever the latest one is, is coming dangerously close. I don't know. It's very difficult to turn it into a bet though. Let me let me get some numbers up before we turn it into a bet. Uh, yeah, no, it's probably difficult to turn it into a bet because they've probably published all this stuff already, right? Like CES was last month. Uh, I don't know whether CES is a big thing. CPU benchmark. Jesus. I was going to make the bet of like, can AMD overtake Intel next generation? But then I looked at the most high-end CPUs and it is 14 down before you get an Intel CPU. AMD crush this. AMD are ruling the roost. Maybe we have to put the bet the other way. Will Intel ever get back on top? Ooh, okay. Now, now we're talking because we're talking about an upset. It doesn't help me at all for this year, but we've already helped me <laughs> greatly. So that's great. I'm happy to have a, yet another long-term coffee bet that doesn't resolve for ever. Um, have fun. There's more to think about with the long-term ones because the short ones, there's only so many factors that can play it out in the next couple of weeks, really, whereas the long-term ones, you can talk about the future a bit more. All right. So last week, we had a 10-year cap on our coffee bet for movies. (laughs) Let's do it a little faster than that. 
if it's going to be, yeah, is Intel ever going to get back ruling the roost? Uh, oof, honestly, five years feels too short because uh, it really feels really? like DSMC with their manufacturing M1 chips for Apple. Do we just want to keep this between? Will Intel get better than AMD in a new CPU release? Yeah, what year? If, if, if ever, if ever. Eight years. Eight years. So I'm looking at the Passmark software CPU mark on high-end CPUs, which AMD currently takes the top 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 spots. 14 spots before an Intel chip gets a look in. Yeah, wow. To be fair, a lot of those chips are $4,000 chips, but there is a, an AMD chip for only $800 US that beats out any Intel chip that has been measured, including the $10,000 Intel chips. Wow. Oh, I don't know. This has to just be an indefinite coffee bet that just hangs out there in the ether. Like, can Intel ever recover? This is another discussion, but chip manufacturer is seen as a strategic priority by the US government now. And yeah. they're like very upset that Intel is so bad at it and Taiwan is so close to China. So maybe there's something that can get them back into gear. I think that Intel are down but not out, although they're feeling really rough right now. I think eight years is maybe too long. I think if they ever do it, they could do it in five or less, but I, there's a possibility that they do never do it. All right, so let's let's say five then. Are you taking the optimistic side? What's the optimistic side that Intel makes it? Intel makes it, I guess, yeah. Dynamism. I'll take five if you'll give me any non-TSMC manufacturer. Okay, yep. Which is almost certainly going to be Intel. Okay, yep. But give me a chance for an upset. Because AMD actually sold their manufacturer, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they just manufacture on, at, at TSMC now. Uh who else would it be? Samsung, maybe. They just do RAM, don't they? Uh, they do. No, no, they'll do um, ARM chips, which are what go into Android and iPhone. All right. So it could be Samsung. You could have a, a dark horse there. We're going to look at just x86 or AMD64 architecture, which is the architecture that would go into a PC, like what you would be building. There's a possibility yeah. that that architecture entirely dies in the next five years and no one cares. And this bet is like really weird when we bring it up. But at the moment, it is still the dominant architecture for gaming. Well, how about we frame it in terms of like just CPU that would go to regular consumer? Yeah, but the Apple M1 now fits into that, right? I feel like if Samsung wins, Samsung wins in ARM. It's just hard to benchmark ARM versus x86 chips, unfortunately. Actually, if we just put the Pathmark CPU mark, then if ARM establishes dominance, then I assume that that's what they'll be tricking. And it'll be Apple M1 chips manufactured at TSMC versus Samsung whatever next generation chips and Intel will be bankrupt by that stage. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Non-TSMC chip is the top of the Passmark leaderboard in five years or less. That's the side I want. If any chip not manufactured in TSMC gets the top of that leaderboard within the next five years, I want a coffee. Okay, cool. So that could be AMD or Intel. Could be AMD if AMD get their own fabs up. Yep. How does that sound? Yeah, that feels like a good way for me to win this bet. I like that. I don't actually think it will go to that, but I think it's possible. <laughs> cool. All right. Yeah. No. Five years. Whatever. I don't know enough about this, so I feel like I may be getting taken advantage of, but whatever. It's just a coffee. This was interesting. All right, Diablo 2 fans. Do we have any Diablo 2 fans yet? I thought everyone just skipped this bit. Is Schmidt listening yet? Oh, yeah, maybe Schmidt. Hi, Schmidt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so in the Diablo 2 news this week, there was an interesting competition launched this week by one of the runners who used to have a few world records, Boxer Kabaddi. I can't remember where he's from. It was called the Dash Act 5 race. So when you launch your Diablo 2, you can put in things called terminal commands, which like changes the path that the game's accessing through your system. And they were mostly debugging tools for the team to work on. And this Act 5 command effectively skips the first 
four-fifths of the game and just launches you as a level 33 sorceress ready to go fight the last boss. You've got to get through the last act. I'll put it in the show notes. There's a bit of an explainer from a runner called Macro Bio Boy on how to beat Diablo 2 in seven minutes, which is effectively just using this command. And he goes through a few strategies on how he participated in the run. There was a little bit of participation from the community, but really what this is, is just like optimizing, running quite differently to the way people normally would play the game. Because you don't have to level up at all. I actually watched this video, believe it or not. Oh, there you go. Very nice. So yeah, you don't have to level it up at all. There would be no grinding or repetitive segments. So when Chris has watched runs with me previously, he got very frustrated by a particular segment where you just potentially run the same boss like five times. Yeah, why could they skip that? Why do they not need those runes? Weren't the runes the critical thing? Not necessarily if you're that powerful already. So when people normally do speed runs, they're beating this boss at level 20. So this is level 33. So so you're you're way more powerful. Right. I didn't have that minutia lodged in my brain for some reason. Oh, well, that's fair. It's a very complicated game. So yeah, there was a few people had a crack at it, which was very interesting. I watched a couple of runs, to be honest. I just stumbled across it on Twitch without any context that this was a competition happening. And I'm like, oh God, don't let there be a new category become the meta in Diablo. What? They've got to have new categories. I thought that's all we did in Diablo so that we can have more world records. We're not getting enough world records, Brian. How long has it been since a world record's fallen? I bet it's hours, hours, maybe days. I should have done a coffee bet on this because I could have got one, I reckon. Let me bring up Diablo Run and I'll tell you. Diablo.run, fresh world records, 10 days ago. 10, oh, nearly weeks. It's unreasonable. We need new categories, Brian. We need more of them so that world records can start falling. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is what the Diablo fans need. (laughs) Yeah, there was like a few things that came up, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, where people created this category called Seeded. So you'd guaranteed have the same maps every time you ran it. There was a category called Battle.net Star where the maps would change every time you save and quit and then reloaded the game. It would change completely, just like it would be if you're playing online. And I'm just like, I don't need yet another category to get distracted on here, guys. (laughs) The proliferation is crazy. Surely one of these is going to be your chance. I want to see you get a world record. I still want to see Brian's world record. And the more categories there are, the higher chance that seems to be to me. Well, yeah, I don't know. But fortunately, this Act 5 thing was short-lived. It was a short competition. First prize was $100, US second, $50, USD. Third prize, 25 Yeah, it was okay. People would start a big long stream, but they'd just bang out a couple of quick Act 5 runs just to warm up, which was interesting. Yeah, because it takes seven minutes, right? What's the world record? Five minutes and sixty seven yeah, sixty seven seconds. Five minutes and twenty two seconds point two nine, in fact. That's what won the $100. Nice. As much as I was just lamenting the creation of new categories, seeing people actually work on something from scratch and try to come up with strategies without any background or copying each other or anything like that was interesting too. Yeah, on the video that I watched, it was fun watching him try different types of builds to see what he could do. I wonder if Sorceress is obviously the fastest always has been in Diablo 2, but I wonder if there's like a dark horse where if you actually be a barbarian and you jump everywhere or something, that turns out to be faster, maybe, in this weird category and no one's trying it. Who knows? Who knows? So there you go. That was the news from this week. Well, the other thing I'm looking forward to is the Affix category. Like, when are we offering $100 prizes to Diablo speedrunners? Have an Affix competition. Good marketing strategy. Nice. Um, Macro Bio Boy, who is the link that we'll put in here, his main claim to fame in speedrunning is the pacifist paladin category, which I would love to talk about one day. So, uh, Well, we do this every week. And I just have to mention the massive Bio Boy. What was his name? Macro Bio Boy. Macro Bio Boy. I don't know whether you know this, but I 100% know that that guy got his start in StarCraft. Like 100% he was a StarCraft player before he was a Diablo 2 player. Not that I know him, not that I have any idea, but if he's playing Macro Bio, he's playing Terran and he's going to make a lot of Marines. 
doing the Patreon thing. Go. As we mentioned, we pay to bring this podcast to you. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for Brian. I just sit here and talk to him and then he spends hours and hours editing. But there are costs associated with the hosting and the logos and all sorts of things. So if you would like to support us on Patreon, that would be really lovely. And we're actually getting some feedback from people who aren't my direct friends. So if you do want to contact us because you found us out there in podcast land, affixpodcast at gmail.com is where you can contact us. And it's really, really nice to hear people being interested or not interested or having corrections or telling us we're idiots. Be nice if you're going to tell us we're idiots. Our egos are very fragile. So just be gentle about it. Yeah, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, that will be in the show notes as will our email if you'd like to contact us about anything. It's really, really nice to hear from people. Once we're incredibly famous, well, we'll start ignoring you, but we're really not very famous. So <laughs> anyone who contacts us is just just a delight at the moment. Yeah, your likelihood of getting a response or at the very least being like, thanks so much for giving us feedback is pretty high. We also have a Discord channel, so happy to put that link in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to come and join that for reasons. I don't know. I just like Discord. I'm so pleased with that music. Our, our logo, I could take or leave. It seems pretty basic, but our music, it grows on me. So every time I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, no, this is this is the podcast music now. Yeah, it's great music. Even the end music. I, I didn't yeah. like the other music that much the first time. I'm like, oh, this is too much. But then to end the episode, it's like, yeah.